1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're going to start the show off today with a couple of pretty important stories, although there are very few days that go by that we aren't starting with important political news. Let me get right to the panel so we can begin our conversation. Jim Galloway, the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who most of you out there are used to hearing on the Friday show, has agreed to join us today instead. And we're very glad
2: to have you here Uh, today, Mr. Galloway. Oh, and I'm very glad to be here, especially given this, this first topic that we're going to discuss. Yeah, we
1: have great, great stories to talk about. Emma Hurt is back with us. She's a reporter for Axios Atlanta. Emma, thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you with us.
0: Always fun to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me.
1: State Senator Kim Jackson of Stone Mountain uh, is uh, back. We haven't had you on for a while. Uh, The session keeps you pretty busy, so we're glad you're here today. You're down to what, five days left in this session? I'm not, uh, it's uh, Kim, I'm not hearing you. Are you muted? Um, I'm not hearing Kim right now, so we'll get back to her. Natalie Mendenhall will work that out. Um, And uh, Tanya Washington, uh, professor of political science at Georgia State University, joins us. Tanya, I'm especially glad to have you here today because we need a professor of law to talk about one of those big stories. And that's the case heard in the Texas federal court yesterday about the abortion pill. So thank you for being with us.
3: Thanks for having me, and I, I you, you gave me a, an upgrade when you called me a professor of political science.
1: <laughs> oh, did I say? So- I'm sorry, professor of law. I, I apologize, Tanya. It was just one of those it's senior okay. moments. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Let's get right to it, uh, Jim Galloway. Your former colleagues at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution <laughs> uh, had a fascinating story that they broke today. Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman talked to five of the members of the special grand jury uh, that uh, looked worked with Fonnie Willis on investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Um, and, and a lot of what they got was a very interesting color about what it was like to be a member of the grand jury. But on the other hand, they also broke some pretty interesting news. We now know that they listened to a tape of former Speaker David Ralston getting a phone call from former President Trump, um, in which President Trump tried to encourage Ralston to call a special session of the General Assembly of the House to um, investigate and overturn the presidential election in 2020. And Ralston testified. frankly that he shut him down pretty quickly he said it was a polite call he told these jurors um but uh he said i'll do everything in my power trump had very little to say after that and he got off the phone so we now we've heard that that in fact on political rewind at one point ralston alluded to the fact that he had gotten a call from trump about this but he didn't go into any detail Uh, Now we know it was absolutely another attempt, a third attempt by the president to talk to a Georgia official about overturning
2: the election. Right, right. And this was this was while while Trump was still president and and David Ralston was still House Speaker. uh, It was it was it was very interesting. It was uh, it was kind of like uh, like uh, like like hearing a, a, a friend from the past. Ralston, of course, died in November uh, and and that, uh, that 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 made it a little bit more chilling, but it was a uh, it, it, this piece by 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 Bill Rankin and Tamar hollerman was, was is, is an excellent reminder of uh, th- that we don't know what we don't know. Uh, we We don't know what Ralston's uh, I mean we don't know the specifics of of, of Ralston's com- uh, conversation with Trump. Uh, now but now we know it was made and and uh, it had no effect. We don't know. Uh, what kind of reaching out that Trump did to Governor Brian Kemp, and what Brian Kemp's response was, uh, or to or to you know to to to, to many other, uh, we don't know if uh, Jeff Duncan, the, the who was lieutenant governor then, uh, was was approached by by Trump. There there are a lot of unknowns here, uh, but I I think you know it's. I think you can you can very definitely say that, the, that that this grand jury now is was 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 Trump focused and and I, I don't know if you read the, the the AJC's jolt this morning, but they 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 closed the segment on on, on this with wondering whether whether uh, we will have the Democratic National Convention and yeah. uh, the trial of Donald Trump happening in Atlanta at the same time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Emma, uh, it, 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 we we now know there were so there were three calls, let's at least that we're aware of the call to Raffensperger, which has become infamous, of course. Just find me 11000 plus votes. There was a second call to a uh, somebody who worked for the secretary of state's office who was up in Cobb County when they were doing a recount and Trump tried to convince that person to find more votes for him in Cobb County. And now we know about the late David Ralston's conversation with the former president. Emma?
0: It was also a call to Governor Kemp, if I'm not mistaken, yes. as well. Um but yes, you're right. And and to Jim's point, who else um, was involved? We don't we don't know. And it's remarkable to me, um I applaud Tamar and Bill for their really diligent reporting on this because a story that some of us feel like maybe we could repeat in our sleep, we're still learning things about. Um, and that just goes to show, <clears throat> excuse me, the pollen is getting to me. Uh, that just goes to show how big of a, um, an influence the president had around Georgia at that time, how far reaching his attempts were. And um, I expect we'll continue to learn things either through reporting or someday through the report that we expect to see someday.
1: Tanya, your colleague, Anthony Michael Christ at, the, at Georgia State School of Law, who's uh, often a panelist on the show, uh, had this to say about this third call, and I'd love to get your thoughts. Uh, he told the AJC, this call, quote, might be important evidence to piece the narrative together about how central Trump was Behind a corrupt enterprise, Tanya.
3: Yes, I mean it's certainly um, evidence that's relevant to whether he engaged in pressure tactics, right, which would um, be otherwise characterized as kind of illegal election tampering or fraud in an event, you know, in an attempt to actually um, challenge Biden's win here in in Georgia. And the piece for me was so. Powerful, the AJC piece was so powerful because it actually spoke to the level of care and detail and the thorough process that the DA engaged in, um, and that special care was taken to remain neutral, not to influence the um, information that was presented to the special grand jury, but to really allow them to consider all of the evidence. And I'm looking forward to that report, which one of the jurors describes as massive.
1: So. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating when we finally see this. Um, Kim, um, when Emily Coors, the foreperson of the grand jury, gave her interview, which which many people, whether they are pro or or anti-Trump, thought was a little over the top. She was a little giddy and she got a lot of criticism for it. Trump's lawyers, of course, really went after her, said it was a clown show. And these five jurors who spoke, to the AJC said one of the reasons they did it was to make sure people understood how serious their deliberations were. And as one example, they talked about the fact that the prosecutors repeated over and over to them that just because someone took the Fifth Amendment did not mean they were guilty of anything at all. It was perfectly legal for them uh, to do that.
4: Sure. I'm actually really glad that these five additional jurors have come out because um, I do think that, you know, the young woman who came out and spoke first has really been mischaracterized, right? I mean, she's 30 years old and she did this really great thing on behalf of the people of Fulton County, on the people of Georgia, on behalf of the United States. And to me, it makes sense that she would be excited that um, she's not received that kind of attention ever before. And so to have her kind of dismissed because of her affect and present presentation, um, I thought was really unfair. So I'm glad to have these other five jurors come out to add some um, gravitas to the work that they were doing.
1: Uh, Jim, the grand jurors said there were basically like three tiers of of people among the 75 witnesses. There were those who came in uh, voluntarily when they were asked to testify and were forthcoming in their testimony. There was a second group that was subpoenaed, to testify, and when they did come in to testify, they were uh, able to answer willingly the questions. And then there was the third group, which was subpoenaed and basically didn't answer anything at all. And we know now that Michael Flynn, uh, who perpetuated the conspiracy theory about as long as anyone, uh, was was the last witness, and he was in that group of people who didn't who didn't talk at all and was forced to testify.
2: Right, right, and, and look—if—if if any of our listeners out there have have served on a jury before, this this is going to sound very familiar. Uh, a a lot of a, a lot of what 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 a uh, any jury, even a grand jury hears is just very very tedious stuff. And you know, of course, they were they were uh, the, these jurors were very interested in the people who volunteered. Uh, that that second group, uh, they you know they they were willing to testify, but. They, they needed the, they needed the cover, at least the cover of a subpoena in order to do that. And then, of course, when you, when you get to that last batch of people, then, you know, you're in for a long day when you've, when, mm-hmm. when, hours of testimony are nothing but, uh, I'll take the fifth, I'll take the fifth, the fifth, the fifth, the fifth. Uh, I, I thought one of, uh, we haven't talked about, uh, one of the, uh, the, 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 the the one, one, uh, one other tidbit that I thought was very, very interesting was uh, what well, came from Lindsey Graham, uh, who apparently told the jurors that you know if that 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 during this I guess this period uh, he was referring to the period between the, the uh, Trump's defeat uh, in November and and January six. You know he he said he said if uh, if Trump had been told that Martians. Uh, had 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 uh, had, uh, had uh, somehow corrupted corrupted the voting system. He would have believed that. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: that's that was a pretty interesting quote, actually. Uh, Emma, let me read just one couple of sentences from this uh, <laughs> report by by Hellerman uh, and Rankin, uh, talking about the grand jurors. They described a process that was by turns fascinating, tedious, and emotionally wrenching. We have to remember they were uh, impaneled for over eight months. One juror said she would cry in her car at the end of the day after hearing from witnesses whose lives had been upended by disinformation and claims of election fraud. For months, they were unable to talk to friends, family members, and co-workers about what they were doing. They said the overall panel was diverse with different races, economic backgrounds, and political viewpoints represented. Um... I would imagine that when uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, the two election workers from Fulton County, who were so viciously attacked by Trump allies, uh, accused of uh, trying to plant votes in Fulton County, uh, that would have brought tears to a lot of people's eyes.
0: Absolutely, I heard them testify in person in D.C. at the January 6th committee, mm. actually, and in that room, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean. It was it was really uh, gut wrenching to listen to, and you couldn't not be affected by it um, <clears throat> on one level. And then on the second level, to what this juror was referencing, is this is a pretty high pressure uh, <laughs> volunteer job. <laughs> I guess we can say this was. Um, and uh, if if you're taking it seriously, I can understand why that would get to you and um, and be overwhelming, especially since you can't really talk to anyone about it. Except these people who were strangers before. <laughs> um, the thing that I'm particularly interested in here is is what uh, the jurors told Tamar and Bill about the the question of of uh, subpoenaing President Trump himself, because as mm. we know, um, that's something that Trump's lawyers have said. Oh, well, he wasn't asked to participate at all. Therefore, we must assume that he is um, not involved and not being held. Uh, won't be facing charges of any sort. And and so we can see that his lawyers seem to see a strategy there. And one juror said, maybe we should have sent an invitation to him. Um, I'd be curious what Professor Washington has to say about this dynamic here and whether you think this will affect charges going forward.
3: Um, Emma, I think it's interesting that the uh, that former President Trump's attorney's put that interpretation on it, because another interpretation is that, and I think the the special grand jury members interviewed, alluded to this, is that it would have been futile to have invited him. But I think upon reflection, their observation is a good one, that perhaps we should have issued the invitation anyway, so we would know for sure, and that would have made it impossible for his attorneys to argue that because they didn't invite him uh, via subpoena to testify that they will not be proceeding, uh, against him with an indictment.
2: Jim, you got a quick comment? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I would just, uh, remind everybody. Uh, I mean, there, there, there will be a criminal grand jury, uh, convened mm-hmm. if it hasn't already. And that, that could serve as another, uh, as another forum, uh, another opportunity to invite, uh, Trump, uh, to testify uh Kim before we close this conversation out
1: and and you're welcome to weigh in on any of it if, if you'd like to but but I one thing one thing that I thought was was noteworthy um uh, this is from the article the group said they had no idea what Willis planned to do in response to the recommendations and here's the key but many described an increased regard for the election system and the people who run it i care about there being more respect in the system for the work that people do to make sure our, our elections are free and fair, said one of the grand jurors. I, I thought that was a wonderful statement from people who spent so much time investigating this.
4: Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the biggest like wins that we could have in terms of uh, restoring faith in our democracy is to have citizens say, oh, I care about this. I want to be invested in it. And and we see this time and time again. If you talk to a juror who stands and sits in just a regular jury, their interest in the process of the criminal legal system increases their um, their ability to really critique the system is enhanced by that. And we see this when people volunteer because it really is a volunteer volunteer job when you work for the elections. Um, Poll workers will say this too, right? I mean, when we think back on the testimony of Ms. Ruby um, and her daughter, you could hear how deeply invested they were in making sure that voters were able to register, that they got their ballots, that their votes counted, right? And so um, we know that anytime people interface deeply with the system, it just simply enhances their desire to make sure we continue to protect our democracy.
1: Okay, well, it was just fascinating uh, to read these interviews, and our congratulations go out to uh, Hallerman and Rankin for uh, getting this story uh, together and giving it to us. Um, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. District Attorney Willis, please tell us when we're going to hear something <laughs> about your plans. Uh, let's move on uh, to a, a, another big story in the news, and and <sighs> I'm going to turn to you, Professor of Law, Tanya Washington, to start us off on this conversation. We know that yesterday in Amarillo, uh, a conservative and admittedly self-admitted conservative federal judge, Matthew uh, Kaczmarek, heard a case brought by a a conservative anti-abortion legal group that uh, wants him to declare that the abortion drug, and I'm going to say mifepristone, and if anybody out there says I'm saying it wrong, I know you'll connect with me in some way and uh, tell me that I'm wrong, but I think that's correct. That mifepristone, which has been approved by the FDA for more than two decades now, never went through the proper uh, vetting that uh, was necessary. And so for more than 20 years, it has been used. Um, Inappropriately, because the FDA didn't FDA didn't vet it uh, uh, correctly in the first place. They're now asking the judge to disallow the use. It is it, it is used by more than uh, the women in more than half the abortions across the United States. Kasmerick says he's going to rule pretty soon on this. This could be an incredibly significant—and what he might do initially is an injunction to stop it before a trial can convene. This is an incredibly important uh, decision coming up, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. And a lot of people have asked, why does one judge get to make a decision that would impact people across the nation in terms of access to what has been historically uh, a safe drug? That allows women to um, exercise reproductive health freedom, Um, and it's important to note that there are strategic decisions that were made in terms of where to file this case challenging um, the use of this drug. And so they filed it um, in a a court, federal district court in the Northern District of Texas, where a single—it's a single judge judicial district, right? So this judge is the only judge who would entertain this case. Um, Judges' rulings are available Mm -hmm. publicly. And so they know, given um, some of the things that he wrote in law school, some of the things that he said during his confirmation hearing, some of the rulings that he's issued since his time on the bench in 2019, um, that he is um, a conservative judge and would... Be receptive to the arguments that are being made by the plaintiffs that are challenging the continued use of this drug and also by the um, 23 attorney generals, uh, including the attorney general for the state of Georgia, who filed an amicus brief. Challenging the use of this drug, kind of asserting a state's rights argument that Dobbs gives states the rights to regulate abortion and that the use of this drug, making it available to women, interferes with the state's ability to regulate um, abortion within its borders and um, is against the public policy of those states that have determined that they need to ban um, reproductive care.
1: Kim, I want to point out the impact here in Georgia. Um, I, I think it was last session, uh, the legislature said that women who wanted mifepristone and uh, the second drug that's used, misoprostol, uh, would have to have an in-person doctor's appointment before they could get a prescription for the drug. What that meant was, although they created a, a, a dip, more difficult uh, road to getting the drug, that it was legal to have it sent to them, uh, it could now uh, close off that path for uh, women having an abortion, but it also, I assume I'm correct, if you have to go to the doctor, you're still covered by the so-called heartbeat law, right? It doesn't change that it's a uh, six-week prohibition, right?
4: Well, that is true. You would still have that six weeks um, prohibition for sure. Um, what that uh, attempt to say that you had to go to a doctor in person was an attempt to slow people down from being able to get access to the drug that they need it. Um, I think it's really important to note that this pill um, is safer than Tylenol, that um, women have been using this pill for over 20, for almost 20 years now um, to have safe private um, abortions where um, they could receive care if they needed it afterwards, but for the most part, um, all are able to do it quite quite safely. Um, and it's, you know, we have this environment where abortion clinics, going to an abortion clinic in and of itself has become so traumatizing because of the number of protesters who are constantly outside of them that, um, you know, this abortion pill has become a way for people to have privacy, to be able to receive the care they need and the privacy of their own homes. They can receive it through the mail, which adds another layer of privacy. And so for us to lose this, um, it's, it's really dangerous, quite frankly. Um, because women will be forced to turn to other options that may or may not be available, particularly in a state like Georgia. There will just not be other options for them. Mm
1: -hmm. Emma, let, let me read to you a couple of graphs of the Washington Post's report on what happened in the court yesterday and then get your thoughts. The federal judge who could upend access to a key abortion medication seemed open on Wednesday to the argument that the drug had not been properly vetted and could be unsafe. Claims that the Food and Drug Administration and leading health organizations strongly contest. While the anti-abortion group challenging the drug acknowledged there's no precedent for a court under the to order the suspension of a long-approved medication, U.S. District Judge Matthew Kazmarek questioned whether mifepristone, has met the rigorous federal standard necessary to prescribe to be prescribed to patients in the United States. Emma?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think back to what um, Professor Washington said about, um, I mean, how the plaintiffs here have been accused of, quote, judge shopping. I believe that the nonprofit incorporated in Texas like three months before they filed the lawsuit. So, um uh, his his record was was known. Um, we're all, everyone's reading the tea leaves and what he said in that hearing and what that might mean. We're obviously going to have to wait and see. There's no timeline exactly on a ruling, um, but it does um, it, it does just bring to mind to me big picture that while the pendulum in this in this debate in in recent past in Georgia has swung to the courts, now we have this case which would have impact. Nationwide, including in Georgia, we have the state supreme court that's going to hear our um, anti-abortion law at the end of this month, uh, the day before Signy die. Um, Meanwhile, we don't see so much abortion legislation in the in the works right now. We have some Democratic bills. Correct me if I'm wrong, Senator, that that are you know trying to roll back some of these restrictions, but not so much on the Republican (laughs) side, which is uh, actually abnormal given (laughs) where we've been in Georgia the last couple of years, and that's because I think everyone's watching the court system the other mm. the other branch of government now taking this on
2: Jim yeah yeah Tanya, if, if I could it's, uh, it, at yesterday's hearing in Texas uh the Comstock Act <clears throat> came up mm. and 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 that of course was the is kind of the central point that uh that uh, uh Republican AGs used to kind of threaten th- threaten uh, uh uh Walgreen and CVS uh, ab- about uh uh, uh, about future, uh, the future mailing of of uh, this this anti-abortion drug. Can you explain a little bit of what what, what their argument was? Yeah, let's, uh, Tanya. I want to get you in here, but before I do,
1: let's point out the Comstock Act is a federal law passed in when oh 1873, which um, prevented the shipping through the mails of obscene materials, including abortion. <gasps> Uh, drugs uh contraceptive uh devices and uh, the like and it was one of the uh, 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 uh m- moment this one of the issues that the plaintiffs brought to the court yesterday
3: <clears throat> yeah um I'm glad you provided that context bill and so the characterization of um the abortion pill as obscene and illicit and as promoting premarital sex and as being. Um, kind of in violation of the public policy of a state over which a state under the 10th Amendment has the right to regulate laws um, is the argument that's being advanced. And that the the FDA's approval of this drug, particularly after Dobbs has given states the authority to regulate abortion, um, interferes with the state power. Um, I did want to say, uh, follow up on something that Emma um, spoke to about the, the safety of this particular drug. I mean, it was, it went through 54 months of trials. Viagra went through uh, two years, right? And it was approved. And so I think that comparison is important um i think it's it's use has been um definitely confirmed to be safe particularly in light of the the report that was just issued about mortality rates for pregnant women i mean what what are we doing it is not grounded in science it's not grounded in the reality of how it affects women what it is grounded in is a clearly partisan desire to shut off all access to safe reproductive
1: care. Uh, Kim, I want you to have the last word on this, but let me offer this. Uh, If you oppose abortion, if you think it is immoral, uh, should be illegal uh, to destroy a fetus, um, then uh, whether um, Mifepristone is safe or not, in some ways, is beside the point. It's an effort to shut down abortions uh, from people who think they are just plain wrong.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that is ultimately the tactic, right? They're using other um, excuses for why the uh, drug should not be allowed to be sold anymore, but Fundamentally, it's because um, folks believe that abortion is um, somehow wrong or um, immoral, and so that's that is a point. I do want to just highlight and raise. You know, it's deeply discouraging to me that Walgreens has already made a statement and chosen not to um, provide this uh, medication through their um, through their pharmacists. I think it's extraordinarily premature, um, and it just continues uh, to create these problems where women have um, a limited access to the medication that they need. So I wish they had slowed down. I wish they hadn't made that decision so quickly.
1: Emma?
0: I do just want to um, say to your point, Bill, about, um, you know, the, the sentiment driving these anti-abortion restrictions around the country in Georgia, as well has, um you know, been attributed to evangelical groups um, and lobbyists from the Christian conservative right. And those are actually the same groups that we're seeing push Um, For example, the anti-transgender health care for minors bill, which is on the state house floor today. So um, very much still active while there's no abortion bills, to my point earlier. Um, You know, these groups who believe strongly against um, that issue as well are are still very much active at the state capitol. All
1: right. All right. We're going to talk in just a couple minutes about that transgender bill again, because it's cleared another hurdle in the legislature. But I am really late to get to our break. For good reason. I really appreciate this conversation about a very important subject. Kasmeric said he's going to try to rule on this as soon as possible. He could quickly put in place a ban on the use of mifepristone uh, nationwide wide. Uh, We'll talk about uh, the transgender bill and more after we pause for these messages.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: We're back on Political Rewind. Emma Hurt from Axios Atlanta, Tanya Washington, professor of law at Georgia State University. State Senator Kim Jackson and Jim Galloway uh, join me um, today. Uh, Before we move on, I do want to address one more issue that involves this action in the Amarillo Federal Court. Um, And, Tanya, I'm going to turn to you very briefly because we really do need to talk about other issues. But this notion of a district court judge somewhere in the United States making a ruling that can affect the entire country is something that's relatively new, at least to my understanding, of how the federal courts have worked traditionally. And it isn't just conservatives who do judge shopping Mm -hmm. during the Trump administration. It was liberals who went, I think, to the Ninth District Court to overturn some of the um, executive orders that Donald Trump, especially the Muslim Mm -hmm. ban on entering the United Mm -hmm. States. This notion of, of district judges making rulings that affect the entire country is to many people problematic and a relatively new development. Have I got that right?
3: I don't think it's a new development. I think it's now on people's radar screens because we think of like state courts that are bounded by the borders of the state. So a ruling in Florida won't affect um, constituents in Georgia or citizens of Georgia. But when you think about the federal court system, it's one system. And so a ruling by a federal district court judge can affect um, access in this case to a drug that would be made available um you know nationwide i do also just want to say very quickly that walgreens um is going to have some des- decisions to make about whether it's going to uh respond to political pressure or whether it's going to respond to economic pressure because the governor of california said look you know we're withdrawing this 54 million dollar contract and i think that signals to other corporations proceed at your own risk
1: all right uh thank you for that uh emma hurt Um, we've been talking about the transgender bill that um, would uh, restrict how medical professionals can treat transgender young people uh, all this week. It cleared another hurdle yesterday. Um, It's already passed in the Senate. It's on the House side. And yesterday, a House committee passed it on to the full House. Um, Is there any reason to think it won't pass the full House?
0: Um, I'd be curious what Senator Jackson knows about this, because she might know better than I, but I will say, having covered it in House committee on Tuesday, Mm -hmm. the chairwoman of the public health committee, Sharon Cooper, seemed particularly torn up about it. Um, And even though she did allow the vote to go through and it did pass through her committee on party line vote, she said, you know, I wish that there was a companion Mm -hmm. bill that protected transgender people from discrimination because we all need to respect each other's choices and she complimented some of the transgender rights activists who spoke and testified. She seemed to know them quite well and I actually saw her in the hallway afterward um, comforting, hugging a mother mother of a transgender child who was just sobbing after the bill passed and it was a really powerful moment. There were a lot of tears in that committee just as there were in the senate side Um, and the bill you know for those who don't don't know it it prohibits doctors from um, administering uh hormone therapy and any surgery surgeries related to transitions for those under 18 it allows puberty blockers but for transgender youth this is a huge problem um those who want to transition fully because staying on puberty blockers for too long does have negative side effects and um at the same time you know hormone therapy and um, surgeries in some cases are considered best practices for treatment of gender dysphoria um, by the American Medical Association, et cetera, et cetera. So, you have a really intense debate, but it is a debate that we're seeing nationwide. We're seeing Republicans introduce bills like this. I think there's more than a hundred related to transgender healthcare just introduced this year. Um, and so, while we have our microcosm here, this is a big thing happening um, across the country. Senator Jackson.
1: Uh, yeah, Kim, uh, uh, pick pick up on this for us, Kim Jackson.
4: Yeah, so this bill will be heard today on the floor. Um, I, you know, the outcome of it is, I think, unknown to all of us, really. But certainly there are members of the Republican Party who have um, a great deal of um, consternation and concern about it. Um, the reality is while they're not a, a huge amount of trans youth in our state, um, when you kind of look at degrees of separation, many of us actually are connected and related to someone of trans experience. And so you have Republican legislators who have family members um who are trans or who are non binary and transitioning. And so um that creates their own kind of stir in their heart about how they're gonna deal with these things. I think Emma's read of uh, Sharon Cooper, Chairman Cooper, was really right, that she was clearly torn. On one hand, she let it go through her committee. Um, and she accepted an amendment, which uh, I actually think that amendment, which would now allow a person to bring a lawsuit against any doctor who did perform a surgery or provide um, access to hormones, um, I, I think that that may actually be the poison pill that um, could, could cause this whole bill to fall apart. Um, but all of that, I think, is still unknown. Um, I, I will say from, from the Senate side, um, while there was a clear vote on party lines, um, I, I heard legislators express regret um, and and deep and deep troubling in their hearts for having to make that vote because many of them can acknowledge they simply really don't understand the issue fully. Um, but clearly, this is a movement and a wave that's happening across the nation amongst conservatives, and so um, you know they chose to kind of vote
2: with their party. Jim uh yeah to, to uh, let me make two points number one it's, <clears throat> this is not just a national movement it's an international movement uh, uh i mean uh t- trans youth are being targeted not just in the us but 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 all ac- across uh europe we've we've seen vladimir putin in russia kind of focus on this issue as a as a as as a as a cultural divide between between Russia and the West uh, the other thing I would say is is it's just it, one of the more remarkable uh shifts in 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 Republican philosophy I think is it involves the courts you, you you now I mean uh the, this amendment that 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 Senator Jackson was talking about uh that would allow uh doctors to be uh, easily sued uh in court and maybe criminally prosecuted you know bill we would go through back in the day uh yes we're old but back in the day, uh, <laughs> we would we we would have entire sessions uh, 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 around the issue of tort reform about blocking yeah. lawsuits, and and now you've got a Republican Party that has actually weaponized courts and is inviting uh, lawsuits uh, here here on this issue and on other issues as well. Emma,
0: I do think also it's important to note that political context here, we do know that some questions related to transgender youth, you know, playing sports that align with their gender identity, for example, these do poll pretty highly, even in a general election electorate, and that has driven, you know, Governor Kemp pushing the law that did pave the way for a ban, which now exists on transgender children from playing in high school sports that match their gender identity. but we we also know that advocates say that this is because there is a lot of misinformation and people don't understand the issue, to to Senator Jackson's point, and don't understand, um, you know, transgender, the transgender community is much smaller even than the broader LGBTQ community, and the fight for same-sex marriage happened, you know, and now we're sort of past that, but now the transgender community is really front and center here. And, um And I think that while um, we have seen interesting arguments from Democrats, even in the committee saying, hey, Republicans, I thought we said last year that parents should best decide, you know, how children's education should be handled. And there should be a parent's bill of rights about whether, um, uh, you know, what what children are being taught and whether kids can wear masks in schools. Why aren't parents best to to decide here? These arguments don't seem to be holding water yet. And I think we have to acknowledge the political pressure that these Republicans are under because of um the dynamics right now.
1: And Tanya, and
3: um, on the point oh, oh, on the point that um Emma and, and Senator Jackson make about the misinformation, I listened to uh, Rose Scott's coverage yesterday and she was talking, you know, they aired um some information from an expert that talks about suicide and the rates of suicide among um, transgender youth when they cannot get the the care that they need. And so telling a 14-year-old just wait until you're 18 assumes that they will be alive at 18 to get that care. And I also am interested in seeing how the movie industry and how other business entities that might be interested in expanding their business into the state will make that decision, just as they did in the same-sex marriage context, um, in a way that's informed by this legislation. Like, we need to also highlight that, um, you know, the economic consequences of passing this kind of ban for the state may be adverse.
1: All right, we've got to get to our final break. But, Kim, I want to give you a last word on this, including uh, what I'd like you to explain to our listeners If this passes the House with the amendment that would uh, uh, allow for lawsuits and possible criminal action against doctors, it means this bill goes to conference committee with the Senate because there are different versions of the bill. And the question is, what would come out of that conference committee?
4: Right. Mm-hmm. So um, actually, if this bill does pass the House, it will come back to the Senate and we will have the option of whether or not we agree or disagree. So um, it is possible that um, the Senate could actually just agree with the House's version and then it would just carry right on to uh, the to the governor's desk. Um, I, I do think with this amendment that there is some likelihood that the Senate will actually disagree and we will insist on our mm-hmm. position that does not allow for um, doctors to be sued. Um, and, and to be clear, you know, there's this whole thread around what criminal um, criminal charges might be brought on a doctor. And, uh, you know, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver asked that question of the person who offered the amendment, you know, what charges would there be? And they couldn't answer the question. Um, but really, what we're talking about is having the po- possibility that doctors um, acting within the medical standards of care would be charged with assault on a minor. That's the actual charge that we're kind of talking about and so this is this is really dangerous what comes out of the conference committee i'm not sure but i I suspect and i would i I believe that most likely that amendment will die and we end up where we started which is no hormones and, and and surgeries no surgeries for for children that's that's my guess about where we land
1: okay thank you very much for that we are late for our final break of the show we'll get it out of the way and be back with more One quick note about tomorrow's show. Uh, Of course, it's uh, St. Patrick's Day. And one of the reasons we had Jim Galloway on the show today is tomorrow we're going to do a show devoted to talking about uh, the Irish. And we can't have a Scotsman like Galloway on that show. (laughs) So uh, Kevin Riley, uh, the Irish editor-in-chief of the AJC, will be with us, as will Geraldine Higgins, who is the head of the Irish Studies Program at Emory University. We're going to talk about uh, the history, the, the the recent history of Ireland, as well as talk about the incredibly rich tradition of Irish uh, writers, uh, musicians, and uh, the likes. So I hope you'll join us for that show. Emma Hurt, before we run out of time today, you know, we've talked about a couple of issues that are of particular importance, obviously, uh, to women. Uh, the abortion pill, its challenge in the Texas court, and, um, and I think it's uh, fair to say that mothers have an enormous interest in what happens to their children as they want to go through the transgender process. That isn't to say that fathers don't as well. Um, but but here's why I bring this up. You had an interesting item in Axios Atlanta the other day that tells us something about how m- people in state government have viewed, uh, the state of women over the years in Georgia. Tell us what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's Women's History Month, as we know. And I have a colleague who did a story nationally about um, statues of women across the country, and it's hard to track. But of uh, um, according to one. A database, you can more easily find a statue of a mermaid than of a real woman in the U.S. And so I got (laughs) to thinking, my colleagues looked at my (laughs) colleagues, looked at Atlanta broadly, and I looked in at the state capitol. And what we know at the state capitol is there are one hundred and thirty about statues, busts and portraits, and only 13 of them are of women. Five of those are of first ladies next to their husbands, Um, and only two of those are of black women. Um, and it just is striking because, um, you know, if you think about the fact that a woman's bathroom only added to the legislative floor of the Capitol until the seventies, um, you know, I spoke to someone who said representation is reflective of, um, political clout. And so while I would argue that women are, are carrying quite a bit more political clout today than they have in the past at the state Capitol, um, we haven't seen that reflected in, in uh, who's being put on display and who's being memorialized, um, there are still just a third of state lawmakers right now are women. The vast majority are Democratic women. Um, so a lot is going on. I think there are a lot of women doing big stuff. Um, Senator Jackson, you can you can speak more to that at the Capitol right now. But um, this is this is kind of a void that we have at our at our Capitol, and uh, it's once you once you see it, it's hard to unsee.
1: Kim, how do you reflect on that? Well, uh, of, course, yes. of course, you know, the, the uh, let me let alongside. me turn to uh, Jim. Let me turn. to. Let's listen to uh, Kim Jackson first. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. Sorry. That's no, okay. It's OK.
4: My dad's name. My dad's name is Tim. So this is a problem in my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, I take people, young people on tours of the Capitol on a regular basis and we point out all of the different busts um, and I'm always having to go out of my way to find um, women who are represented in those busts and also Black representation, right? I know the exact places where you can find people of color who are represented and it's it's disheartening, it's discouraging um, and oftentimes, particularly young people, you know, kids will point it out and be like why is this the case? Because um, many of our kids are going to schools and And they're looking around the Capitol today and they're seeing that the living bodies in that Capitol are not reflective in the ones that have been kind of immoralized in those those statues and those photos. So it's deeply disturbing. Um, The one thing I do want to note is, yes, they have added a women's bathroom to the legislative floor. However, it is upstairs um, and it's up a lot of stairs. So when women want to use the restroom, they have to actually time things out to make sure they can get all the way upstairs and all the way back down and time to vote. So even our bathrooms are not equal at
1: this point. Tanya Washington, you said the same is true with the United States Supreme Court.
3: You're muted. You're muted
1: right now. There you are. Hey, come back.
3: They had to add a bathroom for the first female justice, Justice O'Connor. And I think this thing about bathrooms really speaks to a basic issue of equity right? I mean, being able, we all have to go to the bathroom. And so being able to do that without encountering a number of obstacles, without it being super difficult, um, speaks to the the humanity or the perceived humanity of everyone who is part of our uh, system of government.
1: Jim Galloway, uh, you know, um, everybody who listens to the show knows that my wife and I are great theater lovers and spend a lot of time, especially seeing theater in New York. And let me tell you, the difference between uh, what happens at intermission if I have to use a restroom and what happens <laughs> with my wife, uh, men can get to the restrooms fairly easily. There's not; It's not so easy, especially in a Broadway theater for women. So this is kind of a ubiquitous problem, and I think it's, it's worth noting that it, it, some people may find it
2: trivial, but Tanya Washington's right. This is a matter of equity. Oh, no, 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 no. Look, uh, I think it was last week I was having a conversation with Melita Easters. You know, uh, she, she, is the, she is the founder and the, and the leader of the win list, which advocates for, uh, for women of choice. And uh, she, she had a, a gathering at the Capitol last week and a scavenger hunt. And one of the things that uh, the, her members were required to find was the bathroom.
1: Uh, Emma Hurt, I don't want to I don't want to move away from your question about or your your observation about uh, about the statues. Are you aware of who decides and who commissions what statues would be there and who might be able to rectify that to add at least a few women uh, to the Capitol?
0: Yeah, that's going to be the state legislature and the governor. So can I just
4: let me can I just jump in? The one piece of legislation that we have heard as it relates to um, introducing a new statue is for a man. It's for Clarence Thomas. We have not heard um, ah. any legislation this year to uh, to bring a monument for a woman. So it just continues.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, maybe Emma hurt, you're reporting and the Axios team's reporting. We'll bring that to more folks' attention. Emma Hurt, thank you so much. Tanya Washington, Senator Kim Jackson, good luck the final days of the session. And Jim Galloway, thank you for being here today. Terrific conversation. We're back with more tomorrow. We'll talk about the Irish in Ireland and here in Georgia. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy, everybody.